Now, um, you know, we, we kind of mentioned this a couple of times already, but we're coming into this um, new sermon series, which we've entitled Hashtag Relationship Goals. Some of you, you're like, what is a hash going on in front of this? Um, some of the young people are totally familiar with hashtags. Me, I'm in the middle, I use them, don't even know why I do it. Um, but I'm kind of getting old, but I'm not old, so I can do these things, but I don't even know why. Um, that's kind of where I am, somewhere in the middle. Um, but it kind of encapsulates this kind of zeitgeisty kind of moment thing about the idea of, of, of goals in life. And you can have all sorts of different kind of goals in life, but oftentimes these things are kind of visually represented to kind of give us the feeling and the heartbeat behind some of the things that we might think are important or significant in life. And, um, and, and, and that's why we called it what we've called it. This series, it's, it's a series that we're going to be uh, doing. It's about love. It's about relationships. It's about marriage. It's about kids. It's about, because marriage and, and kids, it's also about sex. Um, so that's in there as well. And, and so I just want to give you kind of a heads up. Um, some of the things that we're going to talk about, we don't often talk about in church. Okay? So I... I what do they call this? I think this is a trigger warning, isn't it? Um, some of these things, I, I, we're not going to kind of consider these things just recklessly or with any kind of view to embarrass or confuse or anything like that. Rather, we want to talk about these things because these are the things of human experience. They're the things of what it is to be a human, not exclusively, but very importantly. And they're really, really um, core to what it is to be a human in our day and age. Don't know whether you've noticed, but our society, our culture, our world is consistently, continually talking about love and sex and relationships and all these kinds of things. If you're a parent, um, please be aware, your kids are gaining understanding about these things from the world in which they live. And, and as a parent, I, you know, if you're a parent, I would love for you to understand what the Bible teaches about these things so that you can be having those conversations. Can I say, and we're going to talk about parents on another occasion, so I'm not going to labor the point, um, but, um, but, but for, for parents, don't let your conversation with your kids be the second conversation they have. Let it be the first conversation they have, okay? Uh, we'll come back to that on another occasion, but just be a little bit brave. Is that all right? Pastor Greg is going to be brave for the next few weeks talking about all of these things. I said to my wife, I said, we're going to do a sermon series about the Song of Songs. And she said, do not mention me. Um, and so that's it. From now till the end, my family is out. <laughs> They're just not going to be mentioned. Um, I did mention it around the dinner table just last week at home. And, um, and let's just say there were some raised eyebrows. Because uh, <laughs> let's face it, your family don't want to hear you talk about sex. They just don't, okay? Um, and I can hardly blame my parents. There was one occasion, and this story is retold quite considerably in my family, when I was just a wee little lad, and we were on one of these kind of holidays, and um, I think it was in the transfer from the airport to the hotel. Is that right? A coach trip. They know what I'm going to say. Um, and we were on this coach trip, and then this little lad pipes up to his parents at the top of his voice, Mom, Dad, where do babies come from? And, um, and, and uh, look, you're, you're like totally relaxed about that because you, you know, you're in the 21st century now. This was the 80s and nobody talked about those things back then except for a huge gaggle of people on the coach from Essex 
who then spent the entirety of the day pestering my parents to give me all of the details. Like, go on, Dad, tell him, tell him, tell him, tell him. I don't know what they thought I was going to get told. I only needed to know that it comes with a bird and they drop the baby, and that's all I need to know, and that's exactly how it happens. All you young people, okay. All right, um, moving on. What we want to understand is that God has a best for us. That's a really great place to start. As sometimes we live in this kind of intermediate, kind of half-light, kind of dusky kind of place in life, and, and stresses and strains come upon us, and, and we start to convince ourselves that this is just how it is, and that kind of we're just made to kind of occupy this kind of half-life. Can I suggest to you, can I exhort you, that's not the case. And we know that the fullness of our, our best life is when Jesus comes again for us. And when he tells you you can have your best life now, they've got a really poor idea of what heaven is. Um, but God does want you to enjoy the fullness of life. So, so we want to know, okay, well, what does that look like? How does this work? What might that mean for us? Consequently, if we start to separate God's best from God... We start to separate the way we live our lives, our love lives, our sex lives, our relationship lives from God, then we start to lose the best that God has. Worst case, we start to move not just into a half-life, but, but something worse. And with all that in mind, do you want to open up your Bibles to the Song of Songs? Those are the pages that you've previously glued together because you never wanted to look at them ever. Um, so you might want to leave them apart. Uh, no, they're not really. Um, if you don't have your Bible with you, grab a Bible from under the chairs. Um, I'm going to read a couple of passages from the Song of Songs. Now, in your Bible, it might be called the Song of Solomon. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the Song of Songs, just a little heads up, I am going to say the word breasts about seven times. Um, but we're all going to be okay. Don't worry. Uh, don't freak out. Okay, now, chapter one, we're going to read from the very beginning, okay, of Song of Songs. So the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. 
My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are my beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. I think I can genuinely say, I don't think I've ever heard the church so quiet for a Bible reading. Um, <laughs> you're wondering, how can a bloke compare his love to a mare? You're just thinking, that's just, that's not, gonna, that's just not working. Well, c- come along with me to chapter 8, the end of the book. Would you do that? And we're going to go there next. And, um, and we're just going to read a few more verses And then we're going to start to try and unpack some of these things and see the meaning of what's going on here. So in chapter 8, let's just jump forward to verse 5. And in your Bible, probably like mine, you saw little headings as we were reading, did you? And it said she or he or others. Do you have that in your Bibles? You, You may well do. Now those are things that are added in afterward but they do so for good reason. What the, what the Hebrew scholars have done is they've looked at the, the, the type and the number of the pronouns used, and so they can understand, is this a bloke speaking, a lady speaking, or a group speaking? Now, we get to chapter 8. Here, we've got this lady speaking again. In verse 5, who is it that, sorry, who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you, There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. That's the one and only time that the name of God is in this book. But it's there, so we know this is all okay. Because we mentioned God, so it's all all right. Um, Carry on. Many waters can quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Continues. This is the voice of others now. We have a little sister. She has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. She, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens, he says, with companions listening to your voice, let me hear it. She, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. I, I just noticed this morning, as I was just going through some stuff on my phone, somebody had messaged me and they said, I see we're going to be talking about the Song of Songs. I started reading it. What on earth is going on? Um, anyone else? What on earth is going on? Okay, so um, just a little bit of background before we come to the core of what we want to understand this morning. Um, This morning's message is entitled, May We Present the Bride and Groom. Um, 
What is going on? Well, like I said already, the book may be called Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon in your Bible, um, different ways. That's because of the attribution in the first verse of the book, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, what on earth does that mean? Actually, when you read through the story, we've got like three main characters. We've got the he, the boy, seemingly a shepherd, and then we've got the she, the young maiden, uh, possibly a goat herd, although as we've read that she was put to work in the, vi- in the vineyard as well. Um, and, and then we've got the third character who is distant. He's only referred to on a few occasions, and that is Solomon. Now what this makes clear to us is the story, the song, is not really about Solomon. But with it being the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, some people used to suspect that maybe he had written it. He's well known in the Bible for being good with songs, yeah? He had a lyrical turn, I guess, like his dad. And um, and some people would say, well, he must have written it. Um, More latterly, people would say, well, it's more likely written, maybe it was presented at court for Solomon to enjoy, or certainly it seems to have been written during the reign of Solomon. And so it's something about attribution and saying, this is for you, king. Um, But the key characters in it are the he and the she, the shepherd and the maiden. And as you saw already, there's something like the the others, like the chorus, the I don't know if you like musicals. Do you like musicals? Yeah, you're an odd bunch of people. Um, but the, in, the, in musicals, you've got the key characters, haven't you? And then you've got all the other people who then just like riotously break into song to carry the story forward a little bit. That's kind of what's going on here. Um, I didn't sing it to you. It, it was weird enough. Um, that's what's going on in this story. Now, what's going on with these characters? Now, over time, people have had different thoughts as to, well, what is this song trying to say? It's not just kind of the the piling up of kind of emotional words. It actually seems to have kind of a narrative arc. It seems to have meaning, even possibly purpose. We're going to talk in a little bit about some of the ideas of of allegory that people are putting onto it, like giving it a spiritual meaning. Um, But before we kind of come to what we would read into it, Let's just read it. And can I suggest that to you any and every time you're reading the Bible? Before you read into it, can you just read it? Would that be okay? It sounds like a really obvious point. But personality is a pretty strong thing, isn't it? I don't know about you, but oftentimes I come and I read the Bible. And and maybe we say these things to ourselves and one another. We say, oh, that was so for me. And I get what we're saying, but before it was for you, it was not for you. (laughs) It was for all people at all times in all places. And so we don't want to personalize or or come to a sense of what we think before we understand what it says. This morning as you arrived, um, you received a little book. Did you all receive a little book? Anybody not receive a little book? Well, make sure you get one on the way out. Is that all right? Uh, Because these little books are called Listen Up. And those books are not specifically about Bible reading, but they're about the purpose of of preaching and of sermons. Don't read it now, even though it's little. Uh, Read it later. Now, I give this to you not to say, listen to Pastor Greg, because he's amazing. That's not what I'm saying. Look, I'll be in the gym on Wednesday morning, and on my podcast, I will be listening to a better preacher than me. Honestly, it's not hard for me to find them. I could find a dozen, you know, as easy as falling off a log. Um, that's not it. What I'm saying is, 
the preaching of the word of God is important. And it's important that we actually invest in this together, just as it's important that we invest in the word together. Before we go to what it might mean, what's it actually saying? In the story, like I said, we've got these three characters. Once upon a time was this idea, and you know, there's not going to be a test, don't worry. Uh, but there used to be this thing called the shepherd hypothesis. And it was trying to weave together these different characters and yet keep Solomon at the forefront of the story, which is quite hard when you read it for yourself. Read it when you, you get home. Um, it's quite hard because he's a background character. And so some folks within this tried to weave together some kind of bizarre and arcane love triangle as though the shepherd was the first love of the girl but then Solomon got in the way and then finally it all came together in the end. Look, that might make for a good Hollywood movie but I'm not sure it's actually there in the text. Other people would try and suggest that the shepherd actually was the king, Solomon, and that this maiden, it was actually described as a Shulamite in the, in the text, was his first wife. But historically, we know that that simply isn't true, that Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh. And he didn't do so so much for love as for an alliance. It was a geopolitical move. One can only hope that they fell in love somewhere along the way. Um, and so, again, we're trying to read things into the text that aren't really there. What is there? There's a young man, and, and he's a shepherd, and he's in love with a young woman who may or may not be a goat herd or a winemaker. I don't really know, but there she is. And they're young, and they're in love, and as we can see when we read the text, they've been betrothed together. More on that later as to what that means. Unfolding then within this betrothal relationship is then a longing. It's a desire. It's a dreaming. It's a poetic imagination that unfolds and is recounted in all sorts of different ways. And the way love seems to be blossoming. And then there's the worry about, is it blossoming or is it not blossoming? Will this come to the fruition that I hope for? Or is it going to be dashed somewhere along the way? Or what if this? Or what if that? Or what if the other? And then finally, there comes at the end, as we read in chapter 8, um, the, the, the final act, the consummation of this marriage relationship and you were like I absolutely had no idea that was what was going on um, but roughly speaking that's the arc of the story you've got repeated cycles of longing and desire the dreamings and the imaginings and, and, and clearly within this betrothal relationship this is not just of the mind I think we can assume that there are actual kisses going on a kind of a rubbish engagement if there weren't um, I don't know am I allowed to say that is that all right It'd be so helpful if you would just smile at me from time to time. This is awkward enough. Um, it's all right, isn't it? You know, when there's a committed, and there is a committed relationship. In fact, it's much deeper a betrothal than an engagement. We'll come to that later. But that's really what's going on in this story. And I don't know whether you noticed, but it's in the Bible. Did you see that? Did, did you see it was in the Bible? I didn't just find it in another book. Honest to goodness, I'm not just glued extra sheets into my Bible. It's there in your Bible. Why is the Bible given to us? Well, principally, it's given to us that we might know God, that we might know ourselves, 
that we might know God's perfect plan for God and us, God with us, us with him, that we might know all the blessings and beauty and bounty of those things. We might know also the brokenness within that relationship and how God wants to restore and redeem and renew. And within this, God is saying to us something very particular. Don't go to spiritual meanings first. Just read what's there. I think, I'm just going to put this out there, I think that God thinks romantic love is a good thing. (gasps) I think that might be true. I think that God might actually think that kissing is good. Not like for everyone everywhere, just, you know, calm down. I think God might actually think these things. I think that God might actually be quite keen on a man who loves him and a woman who loves him coming together and and loving one another and loving him together. I think that God might be quite keen on these things. Is anybody with me? You're like, I'm not going to say amen, not until someone else does. Um, God is keen on these things. Marriage is a good thing. Sex is a good thing. Family is a good thing. There's a tendency, we mentioned already, perhaps because of embarrassment, to run to a purely allegorical meaning of the song. And, and, and it's fair to say that, that we might run from this text to perhaps a deeper understanding of the love that God has for his people. Certainly there's an awful lot about pursuing. There's an awful lot about, about kind of finding someone and, and caring for somebody and, and making someone safe and, and all these kinds of things. And so we might run to, to these kinds of understandings. The Bible tells us very, very plainly that an image for the nature of Jesus Christ and the church is that of a groom and a bride. I don't think the Bible says that accidentally or just because it ran out of imagery. I think the Bible actually wants us to understand some of those uh, dynamics, some of those characteristics and, and that kind of a union. So here, seeing these things described and depicted for us, we can start to let our imagination understand better the love that Jesus has for his church. And these things are perfectly good things, but to run to those alone would be to miss the obvious, that God has made men and women to fall in love. And he's made them to commit one to another for life and to enjoy one another in that context. Now, if that's true, and I think this book makes it plain that it is, It's no surprise then that our central characters, this young man and this young woman, are here over and over again. And we just took the very beginning of it and the the, the final ending of it. They're longing for this. They're longing for it. Now you might be like, honest to goodness, if I was longing for someone to fall in love with me, I would not say that, that she was like a mare amongst Pharaoh's chariots because that may well cause them to kind of go in the other direction. Look, it's an ancient text. Can we say this? Um, now, I mean, there's some, ever, there's some kind of description there about the ornamentation and so on and so forth. The mare amongst Pharaoh's chariots would be the, a prized horse. Not that women are horses. But prized and beautiful above all others, not for work, but and ornamented. You know, there would be nice things kind of to say... Am I digging myself a hole here? I'm not entirely sure. I'm going to move on. Um, If you read on, um, you're going to find there's way more weird stuff going on. You know, cheeks are compared to pomegranates. Necks are like towers with shields on them. 
What's the language is of its time. It certainly is. But come on, just with a little bit of imagination, you can insert your own kind of descriptive lovey-dovey language if you have such things. You're looking at me like, I'm not lovey-dovey. Yes, you are. You're all big softies. I know you are. Um, They're longing for these things. They're longing for the fullness of the promise. (laughs) Some of you are actually kind of laughing now, like, yes, we do. Um, I love it. They're longing for the fulfillment of the promise. They're absolutely single-minded and focused on the fulfillment of the promise. Trace it for me. Chapter 1, and we haven't time to read the whole book today, of course not, although we'll dip in and out. But chapter 1 is full of longing. And, and as, as the book continues, you know, the very first bit, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. You know, this is, there's, there's something beautiful here in the, in the longing. And it continues there's longing through these first chapters. There's followed then in the middle of chapters, dreams of further longing. Chapter 7, you'll find the anticipation of the wedding. And then only right at the end, as we said, is the consummation of the marriage between these lovers. There's a long story here. There's a, a long longing. And what I want this to prompt within us is an appreciation this morning of the meaning of marriage. I've been at pains this morning at the beginning of what I've said to say that this is not just about that, that love is about love, that romance is about romance, that boy meets girl or girl meets boy is as old a story as there is, and it's a beautiful thing that ought to be well celebrated for what it is. Having said that, I want us to understand that kind of longing, the longing that's been painted here, the longing for a marriage, to actually get us to understand the deepest longings of our lives and the deepest longings of God for us and please God, as we're awakened toward him, of us for him. Right at the very beginning of all things, in the book of Genesis, God starts to speak about his plans and his purposes for his people. And we're going to take just a few verses from the, from the beginning there. They're going to come up on the screen if you don't want to um, leaf through um, rapidly. But in Genesis 2 and, um, and verse 23 onwards, um, God has made woman, having made man. And, and then the man, this is Adam we know, in, in chapter 2 and verse 23, he says, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What's going on here? We can see a commonality, a similarity, a unity, but we can also see an element of difference and and of of the compliments that they bring one to another. I'm conscious, I'm using certain words within Christian circles, certain words have wider meaning. Let me explain as we go along, and if you've got questions afterwards, you can always come and ask me. But here we have two who are fundamentally alike and yet beautifully different. And the Bible continues, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Pastor Greg can't resist saying the rude words in the Bible this morning, apparently. Um, So there you go, naked. Um, God has made mankind in his image. I did consider, actually, as I was preparing for this, getting Jack to kind of bleep me every time I said an embarrassing word. Would that have been better for anybody? I don't know. Maybe it would have been. Like, please do that next time. Um, And anyhow, um, God has made mankind in his image. The Bible teaches us this. God fashioned Adam from the, the dirt, so from very ordinary materials. And yet, he fashioned him in a very particular way. He didn't just speak Adam into being, and he was, like he did with all the other things of creation. The Bible suggests that God intimately, as it were with his own hands, if we can kind of add hands to God, fashioned Adam from the dirt. And then the Bible tells us very specifically that he breathed his spirit into him, breathed life into him. And and within all of this is the image bearing of God. For us to be image bearers of God, it's not just about appearance. The, the, The language that the Bible uses about this, it's about imprint. It's as though there's a bit of clay and God pushes his hand into the clay a little bit and there it always will be it's like a kid going along the pavement and somebody's done some new concrete and they just can't resist putting their foot in it and then you know putting their initials in or something as well it's there forever and this is the nature of the imprinting of God's image we are alike to him but does anybody realize we're different to God have you noticed that you're not God's Uh, This is a little revelation for somebody, (laughs) neither am I. We're like God, but different. And here God is, he's mirroring, he's echoing that in his creation of people. He's made man, and then from man, he makes woman. How he does it, goodness knows, bit strange, isn't it? I heard about a Sunday school story where um, the, the, the teacher told the kids about how Eve, you know, Adam, God put Adam to sleep, took a rib, and, uh, and fashioned Eve from the rib. And uh, later on in the day after dinner, the kid was at home apparently, and he started to have a bit of a tummy ache after dinner. And he said to his mum, 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 I think I'm having a wife. Um, <laughs> that's pretty good, isn't it? No idea whether that's true or not, but I really liked it. Um, Anyhow, that's the only thing you're going to remember, isn't it? I should not tell these jokes. Um, But you've got Adam and Eve. They're like, but different. There's a very distinct there. And within the nature of mankind, that's that's the word that God is using when, when he talks about this. God created man, mankind, humanity, Male and female, he created them. Um, That's there um, just a little earlier on in the scriptures. God creates them very specifically in these two sexes to be joined together. Part of the wonder of the meaning of marriage is it that reflects God's desire, he the creator, to be united one with his people. Those that he has made in his image are like yet different to be united. Part of the wonderful meaning of marriage is to reflect that mystery. In a a time-limited way here on this earth, but 
beautifully nonetheless. I don't know whether you, you knew this. Those of you who are married here today, do, do you realize that your marriage is a reflection of God's redemptive purposes in the world? Did you know that? <laughs> That's quite a beautiful thing to be mirroring. Yes. Yeah? It's quite a pretty thing. I like it. Now, God has made people in this way. He's indicated something about marriage, but I've, I've mentioned it already. There's this idea of redemption. Because if you read through in Genesis chapter 3, you'll know that, that there's this thing we call the fall. I don't know whether we should call it the fall. It kind of sounds like someone tripped over and fell. Now, this was an active choice to rebel against the will of God. It's something that Adam and Eve were part of. It's something that all of humanity has been a part of ever since. We need Jesus. We need him to restore us to right relationship with God. Because the relationship is broken. Just to pull one verse out here, in chapter 3 and verse 15, the Bible says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking here to the serpent who has deceived Adam and Eve and led them into this sin, although they chose the sin. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is God saying here? He's talking about the fact that Though he's made by design man to be one with woman, though he's made by design humanity to be one with himself, here have come ruptures and breakages and hurts and pains. Uh, let's face it, if it weren't for the fall, we wouldn't need marriage counseling in our world. But we do. Because we're all fallen and broken people. It's not a point of accusation. It's just the fact that we're all broken and sometimes we break things. Thanks be to God, he's healing us. The journey of our lives ought to be that we break fewer things as we go along. Because there's brokenness, things get broken. Because there's brokenness between us and God, all sorts of things around us get broken. We want to invite his grace and his healing. And here he's prophesied this. He said, come on, I've, there's a hope here. That the, 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 the beginning of brokenness, it's going to get crushed in the end. And, go, and so God, all the way through the Bible, starts to describe how he's breaking brokenness. This is a good description of what God is doing. He's crushing it up so it won't even exist anymore. And there will come a day. How does God do this? Well, look, on and on, you read through Genesis, and, and God, God gives things to say, I'm breaking brokenness. What does he give? He gives a rainbow to Noah. And he says, I'm not going to wipe out humanity. You, you can get as broken as you want. I won't wipe you out. I'm going to save you. What else does God give? God gives a son to Abraham. He gives something unexpected into the, the brokenness of a, of a womb. And God does this very particularly, not just to be a blessing to that couple, although absolutely it was, but because he's speaking this truth into the world through them. God wants to speak truth into the world through you and me. We're not going to be written about in the Bible, but you know our neighbours might take notice. And then God gives other things. He gives the law to Moses. He gives a crown ultimately to a guy called David. And he's starting to paint the picture of how he's bringing hope into our world through all of these things, on and on and on. He gives promises to Elijah, to Isaiah, to all the prophets of grace and glory. And so to Jesus who is prophet, priest, and king. He's the glorious fulfillment of everything. He's the fearsome revolution of all things. He's the gracious redemption 
for those who will believe and will receive. And through Jesus, we journey on to God our Father with his people, his people with him, God with us. Revelation 21 makes this so beautifully plain to us that that God will be with his people and and we will be with him. And it's going to be intimate and close. And there's going to be, does anyone ever feel a bit, a bit of a, a longing for, for unity with God? Does anybody ever feel that? Yes. As God has made your hearts alive in Him? The Bible says that God has placed eternity in the heart of every single human being. Every single human being. Through Jesus, something wonderful's happened. There's come some satisfaction into your life. But you probably found also that that yearning for something of His eternity has grown larger. And, and, and as well as God satisfying you now, he's saying, and yet long for me to come. He's coming. He's coming. And, and here we've got this picture from the beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible of a longing, of a longing, of a longing, and of a promised relationship that God makes. The Bible calls this covenant. It's promised relationships that God makes over and over again with his people, most perfectly through Jesus Christ, his son, so that the longing may blossom and grow to its fulfillment. Jesus is coming again. Look, suffice to say, there is meaning in marriage. And the longing that might romantically be present and that can be consummated or fulfilled as the marriage is is brought together can profoundly speak into our own lives and into our own world of that same longing for the unity between God and his people. You know, when a man and a woman marry, it's truly, it's no more their day than the day of a baby's birth belongs solely to the baby. I think mums might complain a bit about that. Or or the day of a funeral. It's not solely the day of those who have departed, is it? It's the day of all of those who have lives rich with memory and to some extent shot through with pain in the moment. These things of the human experience, they're not just about our own moments. You know, we are not the gods of our lives. We are not the heroes of our stories. And in every good gift that God blesses us with, marriage being no exception, we ought to ask ourselves, okay, God, what would you have me do with this? What is is your purpose? So I might be a blessing, most very particularly to the one that you are bringing me together with, but through that one to those around me. Marriage is an incredibly precious thing. You know, I know I'm saying a message here that it's not echoed in our society. Within our society, um, it's more common for adults to have other kinds of romantic relationships than it is for them to have a marriage relationship. Now, please, as I start to talk about these things, I'm not saying these things in any kind of accusatory way, nor am I speaking any kind of, of guilt or shame over, over your past. What I am wanting to do is teach to you what is God saying is his best for your flourishing? What is his joy for your delight? What is his intention in your design? Our world would say, um, you know, that, that there really is no difference. 
that marriage is just kind of an archaic or an ancient construct, but it's absolutely no difference to, to cohabiting or any other kinds of relationships. And of course, nowadays we have civil partnerships as well in the law. Um, I've got, I mean, they're US statistics, but among adults aged 18 to 44, 59% have lived with an unmarried partner at some point in their lives, which has risen, apparently in the States, 5% since 2002, at the same time as those who have been ever married decreased even more by by 10% over the same period. So in the States, only 53% of adults are currently married. Actually, in the UK, it's an an even more um, different picture. So actually, it's only about 50% of adults in the UK. Um, Marriage is even less common here than than these statistics in the States. And and of course, that's not just a a kind of a, a choice but that's a part of our thinking and our understanding in in our society, our culture. So most folks would say, again, American statistics, but the UK ones are similar. I just didn't have so many. Um, 69% would say cohabitation is acceptable, even if a couple doesn't plan to get married. Amongst those younger than 30, that number jumps to 78%. In the States, only 14% would say it's never acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together. Um... So, if you hear those statistics, you can actually amplify them for the UK um, society. Most people still see societal benefits in marriage. There's a narrow majority, 53%, saying society is better off if couples who want to stay together long-term eventually get married. But 46% say it literally makes no difference whatsoever, and the the numbers are, are moving. So that very soon there'll be a majority who say that marriage really it has no meaning, has no purpose, and makes no difference. Now, is that true? Again, in these same surveys of these same people, when they ask cohabiting couples about issues of satisfaction and trust, specifically if things were going well, 41% answered in the affirmative. That's good for those, but still is a minority. But when you ask those who are married if things are going well, 58% answer in the affirmative. It tells a couple of things. Firstly, marriage isn't your saviour. <laughs> Only 58% will say that things are satisfying, trust is going well. However, it's significantly different, statistically significant and incredibly significant in those lives. To sum it up, though there are fewer people getting married, more people living together outside of marriage, those who choose marriage, according to every which way you look at it, are happier than those who don't. I think that's quite interesting. Happiness is a good thing, by the way. Some of you are looking at me like you're not sure. Happiness is a good thing. No, but it, it's not the only thing. In this arc of longing, God for his people His people made alive for him, please God. Happiness is really important, but the Bible teaches us actually God brings about happiness through a thing called holiness. That God sets folks apart for himself, him for them, for his purposes, for his way of life and living. And through holiness actually flows a happiness like no other. Actually, when we talk about marriage, we could see this as a design of God that is principally about making us holy, not principally about making us happy. Although if God is making us holy and we're enjoying it for what it is, then it should also make you happy. 
And all the married people in the place smile at me now. That'd be really... Okay. Marriage is to make you holy, not principally to make you happy, but it, it should make you happy as well, being the design of God for your life. Time is marching on, so I'm going to march on super quick about some things. Um, one point that I really wanted us to understand when we talk about particularly relationships between men and women um, as we begin this book... I don't know whether you noticed, even in that very first chapter of the Song of Songs, but when it said she, she did a lot more talking than the he. Yeah. No, you can't talk, Ronald. You're a, you're a he. That's disgraceful. <laughs> Golden comedy timing there. Um, I don't know whether you... you just be quiet now. Uh, and chapter 8, it was exactly the same. The she did a lot more talking than the he. Now, again, don't read into it before you've just read it. <laughs> Somebody's done a bit of analysis of the text. And this is really, really interesting. Because I don't know, and maybe ladies have noticed this more than men. But most of the people who speak in this book are blokes. Has anyone noticed that? It's like, and you're a bloke too, Pastor Greg. Wish you'd shut up. Um, no, not really. You would never say that. But um, the, the she in, in the text of the Song of Songs, 53% of the text comes from female voices, principally this one voice. Only 34% are definitely male, and the rest comes from groups who are also largely female or, or from unknown sources. This is really interesting in the Bible because it's quite unusual. It's not exclusively unusual. We've got people like Miriam and Deborah singing beautiful songs in the Old Testament. We've got some of the most significant voices in the Bible are women, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, for instance. And, and those ladies who are the first people to see Jesus risen from the tomb, very significant voices. But here we have a majority voice being a woman. And, and you might say, well, it's just because women are better at talking about emotions than men. It's true that they are, but blokes, that's not an excuse. <laughs> Identifying the fact that you're rubbish at it doesn't mean, and I shall just stay rubbish at it. <laughs> just because it's a truth doesn't mean it's necessarily a good thing. We need to run the marriage course, anybody? Yeah, shall we? Look, I think, and, and many commentators would say, look, what is going on here, it, it's the, and, and actually we find this in Genesis again, let, we'll go back in just one moment, in the beginnings of humanity, that the foregrounding of the voice of the woman is reflective of God's will for relations between the sexes. That's not to say that actually God wants the women to be dominant or say more, but it, God is saying to us very, very clearly in this relational book, as well as in Genesis, that the voice of the woman is as important as the voice of the man. I don't know whether there's a word for anybody here. I don't know. I do know it's for me. Um, quite possibly. Look, we talked about it already. God created humanity, male and female. He didn't create humanity male and then as an afterthought. Don't read in something that's not there into the Bible. Humanity, from the beginning, male and female. Genesis 2 and 18, it's a great verse. Um, it's going to come up on the screen. 
Let me read to you what one commentator described about this verse. He said, look, the mutual complementarity of the two sexes is seen in the description of the position of the woman as literally one standing opposite him. The Hebrew implies no subordination, but equality of status and complementarity in purpose. Now, again, I understand if you're, if you're a scholar of the word, you'll know that some of these words, they might have particular meaning in particular ways. Don't say that I've said something that I haven't said. If you want to ask me about complementarianism and egalitarianism after, come and ask me. Happy to chat about it. But what is being said here is equality of status, that they complement one another. What does that mean? Each makes up for what the other lacks, the commentator says, and each one stimulates in the other what they have in common. It is a relationship of mutual companionship, mutual help, and interdependence. There's something very, very beautiful in God's heart for the relationship between not just men and women in general, but a man and a woman. It's there at the beginning, if you'll know where to look. And I want to, just as we, this week, are opening up this book, and we're going to, for the next few weeks, so you're all going to go on holiday, aren't you? No, you're not. We're going to, for the next few weeks, I want you to understand some of the things that are core here. And the things that are core are the meaning of marriage and the nature of God's creation of men and women and the beautiful plans and purposes he has for both. For both. The Bible would say, will you explore what God has for you? I, there are so many siren calls in our society that would say, try this, be that, do this, have a go at that. This means this, that means that, or this means that and that means this, or you know, whatever. The Bible says, here is a beautiful picture that I'm going to unfold for you. Would you like it? It's woven into your design, your very nature. It's woven into the design God has for human relationships. And, you know, we're going to see over this, this time, it's not just about marriage. Next Sunday morning, we're going to talk about friendships and the beautiful design God has for friendship. And the evening on next Sunday, we're going to talk about parent-child relationships and those dynamics as well. The week after that in the morning, we're going to talk about sex. Don't leave me on my own. Also, we're going to point the chairs at the back so you don't have to look at me. Um, no, no, we're not really. Uh, we're going to talk about some of these things. Look, God has purpose and meaning and design in every relational aspect that he's built into you. And, you know, having said that, we've said it already, marriage isn't anybody's saviour. Human relationships aren't anybody's saviour. Romance is not anybody's saviour, although it's a beautiful thing. Jesus is your saviour. There's so much more we could say today and no time at all. So we're going to perhaps just draw it together there. Um, oh, I have a book. It's called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. It's really good and I only have one. Is there a couple here who would like a book? Any married couples who are like, this doesn't, it's not a way of saying that my marriage stinks or anything. You're all like, I, I, I saw a hands. Okay, so, no, you're too late, sorry. Um, <laughs> oh, there we go. Um, sorry, I've only got one. I'll bring more books. Now, 
Go on, stand with me. Would you do that? And those who are leading us in worship. You know, we're going to come in a moment or two. We're going to bring our tithes and our offerings. And that's going to be good. Like I said, if you've got questions about anything I've said today, I know it, might, it can be a little embarrassing. Please don't be. Um, you're welcome to come and ask me at the end of the gathering. Um, okay. We talked a little bit about marriage this morning. We've talked a bit about God's promises for us, of sex, of love, of promise. We're going to talk a lot more as the weeks unfold. Just for a moment, we're going to consider the good gifts of God for us, okay? So just while we're kind of thinking about these things, maybe you wanted to close your eyes, that'd be great. If you're happy to do so, that's fine. Um, and, and just, yeah, I want you to consider your life before God. I'm very, very conscious we talk about these things and, and, and there are so many different experiences in the room. And I, I don't want to be at all flippant about that whatsoever. I'm conscious that when we talk about things of romance, of love, of relationships, of marriage, of sex, of kids, of all these things, for some of you, the first place your heart or your head goes is towards pain or, or to regret or, or, or anything like that. It's not, it's not my intention for any of us to perhaps leave there. But you know, sometimes it, it's not always a bad place to acknowledge these things, but to acknowledge them not just solely to ourselves, but to acknowledge them before God. Because primarily, principally, firstly and foremostly, you're longing, you're made to, to long for God. He's your satisfier. He's your satisfier. He's your saviour, your healer. He wants to fill you with his spirit. And he is coming again for you. He's coming again for you. Oh, he's coming again for you. Some of you, you're not sure about that yet, but he's coming again for you. Honestly, if I could go around the room and just say it to all of you, I would. You're going to have to say it to each other afterwards because some of you really need to hear this. Jesus is coming for you. And subconsciously, you start to say it's for someone else because of this or that or the other in your experience or your mind or your heart. No. Come on, here's a word. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. Come preach to your heart a little bit. Now in this then, we want to say, God... Don't let me be a person of idolatry. We talked about this in Soul Detox, didn't we? God, I don't want to let marriage be an idol or, or kids be an idol or, or sex be an idol or, or, or relationships or romance to be an idol. I don't want any of these things to be idols. God, they're, they're good gifts. They're terrible gods, awful gods. Lord Jesus Christ, would you just awaken a longing for, for you within me? And Lord Jesus, then would you order all the longings of my life? Maybe I... Go away and have a read of the book and then it'll help you when we come to explain how, how, how longings can be ordered and can come to good fulfillment. But right now we can just invite the Spirit to do a work in our lives, can't we? And say, Jesus, would you just awaken right longing within me for you? And then, Jesus, order the longings of my life, Lord Jesus. Order them, please, God. Yeah, Lord God, would you grant me your wisdom and your will to, to live according to your ways. Fill me with your Spirit. Please. Fill me with your spirit, dear Christ. 
And Jesus, within that understanding, within that context, I do just want to pray for my brothers and sisters that you would satisfy the longings of hearts here today. Lord Jesus, there are good longings here in this place that haven't yet been satisfied. And I pray that good and godly longings would be satisfied, Jesus. Look, God, we said it at the beginning, we say it at the end. It's your heart's desire to bless your children, God. And, and I love that about you. And, and I thank you that you, you do this for your children, God. So God, in the context of, of you being our longing, in the context of you ordering our longings, our, our submission to you, Jesus, then God, would you satisfy heart's desires here today. God, bring healing, healing to hurts, Lord Jesus. There's much more work to be done. It's not just the moment of a, a word said. But God, do these good things for us, we pray. Amen, amen. Thank you. Thank you.